Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Build Value by Choice. I am your host, of course, Nana Bonsu, and our website is www.infhorizons.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or a comment um, because that helps the show grow and help more people to know about it. So also you can check us out on Facebook or on Instagram or LinkedIn. Today's episode will, is going to be talking about businesses becoming sellable or being able to sell uh, businesses. Uh, and specifically, we're going to focus in the manufacturing industry. And today I have a great guest to offer you. The theme of this podcast episode is going to be looking at your business from the perspective of a manufacturing business broker who also happens to be an ex-business owner. So he's rode in your shoes and now he's on the other side and he's helping to advise and guide businesses toward their exit. Today's guest is Chris Fagnant. Chris's role as a business broker is born out of a lifetime of experience living and working in a family-owned businesses. He grew up in a heat-seal-laden business. Initially, Chris pursued more corporate opportunities and spent seven years working in the restaurant industry prior to his return to his family's business in manufacturing in 2010. From 2010 to 2021, he was a president of Qualtech Manufacturing, and his focus was on leading the resurgence of advanced manufacturing. In parallel with business management, Chris has invested in commercial real estate and managed properties associated with the businesses. With over two decades of hands-on experience in small and medium-sized businesses, Chris helps people make sense of the market when the time comes to buy or sell. When he distills the various rules and responsibilities that he's had in his career, the one constant thread linking to them all together is linking them all together is his ability to build relationships with people. His goal is to help people make confident decisions in a complicated environment. Welcome to Build Value by Choice, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So I want to kick off by asking you what inspired you to become a business broker and what led you to focus on the manufacturing industry uh, as a business broker? Sure. Uh, well, the the short answer is I was asked <laughs> to become a business broker. Um, I you, Kind of along the theme of building relationships, uh, we I had established a relationship with the business broker who sold Qualtech to my family back in 2000. And uh, when we uh, completed the sale, uh, and I'll get a little bit more into this, but the the sale and uh, partial shutdown of our business in 2021, the broker, uh, Ron Chernak, who had sold us the business in 2020, uh, reached out to see if I'd be interested in joining his firm. And uh, and it was one of those things that had not really occurred to me, to be honest with you, um, wasn't on my radar. The The piece of it that really drew me in was the opportunity to share my experience, uh, both as a business owner, but having gone through the sale uh, in, in a good and bad situation, kind of all at the same time, and to be able to share that with other uh, business owners, other people who are considering selling so I could help you know, help them through the good, help them through the bad, uh, help them avoid certain things and and uh, take advantage of others. So it, to me, it was an opportunity to put the lifetime of manufacturing experience to work um, for other manufacturers. Yeah, that makes logical sense. Uh, in your opinion, what are the key factors that determine the value of a manufacturing business? You know, manufacturing businesses are going to come down to people, productivity, execution. You know, the, the, the business's value is going to be a function of how much cash flow it's able to generate, like every other business, you know, the ability for, um, you know, or I should say every other mature business, the ability for that business to demonstrate, uh, you know, bottom line 
cash flow, whether that's a seller's discretionary earnings calculation or an EBITDA calculation. The things that determine the value of the manufacturing business are tangential to that cash flow. How did you get there? You know, what is the gross profit and how does that distill down to uh, net profit? And are they doing the things that healthy businesses need to do? Do they have HR policies in place? Do they have quality policies in place that are followed and demonstrated? Do they have, you know, operational excellence uh, throughout the organization from receiving raw material to finished goods going out the dock? Um, And then I would say on top of that, you can get into some of the more specifics like what supply chain are they a part of, or are they selling directly to a customer? Do they control their own product lines? All of these things have the opportunity to add or detract from the value of that business, depending on how they're executed. Now, yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I I want to pivot back to what he had said about you, know, you the reason why you're where you are now is you sold your family's business that you were running. Now, can you tell us what the experience was like? What you know, what what helped you know, make the process successful for you? And what can listeners that may be looking to go through the same process a couple of years from now? Uh, what should they learn from that? Sure. Um, so the the business um, that we owned, the business that I ran, was a, a metal stamping business. And so, from an industrial manufacturing standpoint, stampings are generally utilized where you need high volume of a particular component. And the world that we lived in was very tight tolerance. Metal stampings uh, usually made of uh, stainless steels, aluminum, uh, copper, uh, materials like that. And then we controlled the front and back end of the process. So the tool and die making, which is the kind of building the machine that's going to make, you know, be put in a stamping press and that, that machine is going to make the parts And so we specialized in progressive tool and die making. And then uh, we also controlled the back end of the stamping process. After the parts had come off the press, we would do um, heat treating, metal finishing. So chemical processing of of metals to allow, to preserve them and allow them to live in various environments for kind of indefinitely. Um, So passivation, electro polishing, anodizing of aluminum, uh, these are somewhat typical processes, but we were able to develop specific processes for specific parts for specific uses uh, based on the the customer's needs. Um, And those, the two main industries that we served almost for the the whole 20 years we owned the business were uh, aerospace on one hand and the supply chain that fed up into Boeing ultimately. And then uh, on the other hand, medical device. And so the beginning of 2020, um, you know, in March of 2020, the the aerospace supply chain, um, some people may forget, but Boeing was in a kind of rough spot before COVID started. And then COVID started. So the the, uh, the outcome of that was uh, for us a 95% reduction in demand from our largest customer. And uh, so we we were put in a position where we had to make a decision. We had to pivot. We had to do any of these sort of uh, terms that have become kind of colloquial uh, uh, business terms lately, but the we had to make a decision. We had to move forward with something. And so uh, while on one hand, we were in the aerospace market, on the other hand, we were in medical device, specifically respiratory medical device, uh, and, and in a respiratory pandemic. And so where we saw one customer 
you know, going to the floor, we saw the other customer going to the roof and we, we did what we could to try and maximize the factory's output by moving employees around to meet that demand. And in the near term, uh, what we saw was an opportunity with our largest customer, although the aerospace you know, demand wasn't there, our customer kind of faced the same thing. They too were part of this Boeing supply chain. And so, you know, they had an opportunity because they weren't as busy. They weren't, uh, you know, they had people that they could deploy uh, to do other things. And so we worked with them to sell that aerospace division to them. So it was an insourcing project for them. It was an opportunity for an exit uh, out of a, a customer base that was going to have zero sales for what amounted to at least 12 months and, you know, could have been longer. Um, and, uh, it was kind of a win-win for both organizations. And so, um, the, the success of that process was one identifying who that buyer was going to be, uh, because rather than just jump right in with the deal with that customer, we did look at what the market was telling us. And at the end of the day, that part, that piece of our business was most valuable to that client. And so, you know, from a success standpoint, what we did was we, we leveraged relationships with the right people. So we went up through the organization, the corporate um, uh, levels of the organization to ensure that we had advocates for our business um, that were willing to go to bat for us uh, all the way up to the, to the leadership of uh, what was a publicly traded, what is a publicly traded company. And, um, and that, in my opinion, was the, 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 the key strategy. You know, the value came from what we had done for the previous 20 years. You know, what we had done was continue to improve their part, to continue to invest in research development, to make things better, um, to implement and help them implement quality standards um, that went well above and beyond what the part was when we first um, started making it and when we had kind of inherited it from the previous uh, manufacturing team that, that had it elsewhere. So the, the relationship building, uh, or I should say the reputation building for the previous 20 years was, you know, we already had that in our back pocket. We were able to point to that through the relationships we built uh, with key players in the uh, corporate structure to say, look, here's what we've done. Here's what we can sell to you. And it makes it a simpler transition. It makes it far more valuable to them than to say, try and go out on their own and recreate that wheel. From a, a success standpoint, it was leveraging those relationships, but then being willing to see it through to, you know, for what is a very long process. Um, you, you don't sell a business and get a check next week. It's, you know, people who, uh, you know, who say sold their homes, uh, even, you know, even very high value homes can still, you know, you can still close a transaction on something like that in, you know, a month or two. Um, for businesses, it takes much longer and you have to be, you have to have the endurance to get through that whole process. And so for us, it was a seven month, you know, due diligence process. If you want to refer to it like that, we, you know, say three months of it was the actual due diligence of the, the financials, the performance, you know, metrics and sharing that information. But the remainder of it was planning. It was get in touch with the customer or the, the buyer in our case and say, this is how this is going to play out. If you buy this business, these are all of the various factors that need to be addressed before you can even come in and start moving equipment, 
transferring people, uh, transferring knowledge, all of that, uh, all of the uh, tangible things that were coming down the line. So there was months and months and months of communication, information sharing, gathering, and being willing to do that um, in some cases around the clock because you're doing it in an environment where it's not public knowledge, right? You're not going out and telling everybody that this is what was going to happen. And so, um, you know, all of those factors, you know, going back from developing the relationship and or the reputation and doing things right all along so that you're even in a position to sell that, that, that business um, as it is and as it can be for the buyer. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, um, yeah, I was actually you already answered a question I had about how long the process took and all of that. So, so then um, the how far in advance did you you know? In this case, you probably knew, you know. It looks like it sounds like you knew the the buyer, but if you don't know the buyer, how far in advance would you advise? Because that seems like you know, you were essentially work you know working on your business, so you're able to build a uh, relationship. So how important I know is you know know how important you stress in relationship building is. How far in advance? Because I mean, you're able to do it in seven months because you knew the buyer in, in somewhere. So, how far in advance should businesses plan on you know building uh, relationships if it's not an ongoing thing that they do? And and then the other thing is, did you uh, open it up for like competitive bidding, or you kind of you know through relationship building, you just kind of knew who you wanted to uh, buy your company, and you just kind of uh, tried to woo them that way. So to answer kind of the last question would be, you know, we we did open it up to the market in a sense where. We, you know, again, you know, relationships wise, we, we had some of these relationships already, but some of them were introduced to us because of our circle of influence and because of, you know, network of trusted advisors, right? So we had spent years previously, you know, with the idea that, you know, this business was intended to stay in the family with current ownership uh, and, and do a generational transition. But it, even with that, it was still preparing the business for a transition one way or the other. Even though we had planned on a, you know, a transition within the family, we were still positioning the business and running it as though that transition would be like a traditional go-to-market. So putting things in place within the business so that your uh, we were we were tracking cash flow in a way that would make you know, would translate to what the market would want to look at. Um, We were um, putting leadership structure in place that the business could run without the the president or CEO being present on a, you know, day-to-day basis if necessary. Um, You know, putting in place the the structure of the business uh, years in advance. And so when we talk to business owners who are considering a sale, um, you know, three years would be a Kind of like the the front end, the short end of the timeline in terms of what most people need to prepare the business for sale. Um, now, there's always scenarios that come up, and you know things happen, and you have to make decisions. Uh, you know, if, uh, suddenly life changes, and and it's always possible to do it. But in those scenarios, unfortunately, you you may be leaving money on the table depending on how well prepared the business was. Um, and so, so that preparation time, as much time as you can have, and in some cases, from the day you buy the business, there should be some amount of thought being given to what does it look like, you know, upon the exit of this business. Um, you know, most businesses should not be 
um, considered to be a lifetime appointment. <laughs> this, um, and as so, much as we all would like to think we're going to live forever, right? Right. And so, if you if you run your business uh, in a way that um, eventually it can be uh, it cannot run and operate without you as part of the day to day decision making, um, you're already on the right path to preparing that business for sale now we can get into some of the things uh, tactically that are important. Um, and I think it's valuable to kind of connect those dots now, but it's, you know, you, yeah, sure. from an accounting standpoint, you want to make sure that the books are as clean as possible and not in a ethically clean, but more along the lines of, you know, there are personal expenses for business owners that get wrapped up in the business, whether you like it or not. You know, if you're running your own business, you are probably working north of, 50, 60 hours a week and, you know, your meals uh, end up being eaten at work. Your car might be a company car. Your cell phone is probably a, uh, used primarily for business. And, and some of these, you know, call them minor expenses can be wrapped up in the business's books and you want to work towards getting those out. Um, in any business valuation, um, uh, uh, M&A advisors, um, accountants, um, uh, companies that are able to do uh, certified appraisals, they're all going to look at these personal expenses and, and, and account for what we refer to as addbacks. Um, so getting, you know, allowing the business owner to, to get credit for expenses that wouldn't necessarily be there without that business owner being in place. So, you know, getting to the actual final number of what the cash flow of the business can be. But even though you have the ability to do those calculations, the closer you can get to um, true business expenses being represented in the um, uh, in the gap numbers allows the the prospective buyers to look with confidence and not have to do any mental gymnastics about how the business might look under their ownership. It's already you know as close to. Uh, that state as possible when they buy it. So that's a that's one of the ways that where you might want a couple of years out ahead of time so that you've got two years of tax returns to show, hey, this is these are clean books. You know, very few owners' expenses uh, wrapped up in here, or you know, uh, expenses related to business um, uh, structure that isn't going to be there when the buyer purchases the business. Right? You know, if if you know going into it that there's a whole division of your company that the buyer isn't going to want, whomever that buyer might be, then you want to start showing in the books, you want to isolate things. So it's easier to show, Hey, these expenses are related to this part of the business. And that's, you know, being wound down or it's um, unrelated to the purchase profile. Now, that is, uh, and as a matter of fact, it was interesting. Somebody was asking me yesterday, how much time in advance uh, people should um, should plan for this, and I give them three or five years. And you know, you just reiterate it because you need to first, you know, you know, restructure and transform your business, and then you need like a, you know another year or two to be able to show the results from that to be able yeah. to um, you know, get the uh, benefits of what the restructure and the transformation that you've done. Um, the, uh, one thing I want to add on because you just reminded me with what you said um, that that timeline of being able to show what the business can do. Um, so when we say, you know, hey, three years would be pretty ideal. Um, one of the things to consider, especially in manufacturing, because one of the things we hear the most is, you know, yes, okay, the business uh, is going to be, 
you know, valued based on cash flow. But, you know, our business, we've been reinvesting in the business. So we have not been putting that value to the bottom line. And so you're not going to see as much of the value if you do the valuation that way. And so one of the things we tell folks is if that is the case, then, you know, from this conversation, from a point in time, um, it would be valuable for us to show, hey, up until, you know, uh, February 3rd of 2023, we were running the business this way. And from that point forward for the next two years, you can see that we adjusted the way we were running the business rather than doing the, the, the types of things that we would have done under the circumstance where we intended to own the business for 10 years down into the future, we started preparing it for sale. And thus, on that day, you can see we're driving cash to the bottom line because we're no longer reinvesting in certain ways for the long term. We're, we're strategically positioning the business for sale. And, and when you take, you know, I, ideally, you want to look back three years and show a runway of success or what the business can do. But if you've got three years, one of them was, say, the, the previous way of running the business. And two of them are, hey, after this point in time, we had a conversation with Chris at the FBB group and told us to do these things. We, we can demonstrate that quickly, you know, be able to turn that switch on and put money to the bottom line. That has value as well. And, and buyers would be able to see that and recognize, okay, I, I can see the before and after. It makes sense. Is, is the amount of time um, different? If, for instance, instead of uh, you know a business owner wanted to sell, like in your case, you you know you had initially your family business, you had an initial plan to transfer it down to subsequent generations. And oh, by the way, it just so happened only thirty percent, according to the Family Firm Institute, only thirty percent of uh, businesses successfully transfer from the first generation to the next. I can't remember exactly what generation yours was, but the, but it gets down to like twelve percent from the second to the third. So, is the time to try to prepare for transfer? The same or fewer than how much time you need to plan your business for sale? Yeah, that's it's a good question. And uh, it's it, it can be a sliding scale. I think that really, um, really depends. But the organizational structure is going to drive that. So if the family has has had succession planning um, as part of their strategic vision for the business, they likely will have gone through some of the, you know, gone over some of the hurdles that are in place with regards to transitioning a, a business within the family. And oftentimes that's going to be, you know, first and foremost, who's running the company? What, you know, what positions are they filling? What functions are they, you know, are they covering in the business? And are there outside, you know, out of the family um, people? So we've got, you know, experience with that in my family. We had at one point a, a CEO who is not part of our family. We had hired him from the outside. He helped uh, identify and grow areas of our business. He, you know, really helped streamline a lot of things. And there was incentive structure for him that was very different from the incentive structure for the family. But in the end, the communication was there that, you know, hired gun CEO knows that, you know, the intention is to transition the ownership uh, within the family. The communication is the most important thing that everybody has an idea of what the strategy is long term. So from a timing standpoint, you know, whether you're transitioning the, the business internally or externally, it's a years long process. Um, and I, I mentioned it earlier, but I kind of, you know, maybe circle back on it, the, the, the trusted advisor group. So, you know, for most people, it's going to be a CPA accounting firm, somebody that understands the business uh, from the outside from by the numbers. 
legal, you know, an attorney who is familiar with the the business, the business dealings, the type of industries it's in, um, but has a transaction background, so understands what it would take to to move a business um, through a transaction, whether it's internal or external. Um, and then um, estate planning, and I would also add to that uh, financial planning. So estate legal planning, getting entities in place, so you know you can do a tax efficient transition of uh, of ownership, um, and you know timing wise, estate attorneys can help you identify here's how long it takes to get those things in place if they're not already there. Just so it gives you an idea of how long that timeline is going to stretch. Um, and then financial planners so that you have an idea of what your exit number is. Um, in the, the business broker world, uh, especially at FBB, we, we use the term freedom point um, as uh, an, uh, a way to identify how you know when it's time to pull the trigger. Um, and so if you don't know what that number is financially, what the ownership needs in order to walk away from the business it's going to be impossible to make a decision or you're making a decision without the right information at hand. And so financial planners can help put a number to the, um, to the puzzle and say, if we do all these things, this is where we got to be. That network of trusted advisors is going to help you identify what that timeline looks like. You know, if you've got a lot of things in place already, you might be able to shrink that timeline to one or two years. And uh, if you don't, then you got a plan and these, th- those folks will be able to help you put a vision to that, that timeline and then execute against it, you know, uh, year in, year out. That's one of these um, value ads that we offer, which, which we tell business owners, hey, come take a free assessment with us. So we'll help you look at uh, what areas of your business, uh, you know, you may have some uh, hidden risk that could trip you up, or you may have some assets, that are some treasures in your business that, you know, could be, uh, could add even more value to your business. Uh, so definitely, it's a, it, just like you said, I mean, that's essentially what we play, the trusted advisor area where we help businesses just look at uh, realistically about what the, you know, what the risks are or how they can protect themselves and then help, you know, help you know, collaborate with their CPAs and their uh, attorneys right, Absolutely, to make sure that yeah. they take care of the, the different aspects of those uh, specialties. What are some of the common misconceptions that business owners have when it comes to selling and manufacturing business? Probably, well, the, the number one misconception is how the business is valued. Um, so I've touched on it already. You know, cash flow is king in this scenario, um, and so if businesses are um, going into it thinking that uh, top line revenue is going to be the main driver, um, if they're going into it thinking that um, uh, specific IP um, is going to be the main driver, um, unfortunately, those things uh, outside of uh, outside of very specific circumstances, they generally aren't the, the main driver of uh, valuation for a business. Um, but uh, speaking to the things that kind of go in order, uh, if you will, kind of, I like to joke that, you know, everybody, every buyer, uh, every, you know, private equity firm, every, um, you know, sophisticated buyer entrepreneur coming in is looking for a unicorn. And in the manufacturing business, you know, small business to mid-sized business, you know, it's uh, 
something along the lines of, you know, I'd like a million dollars in adjusted EBITDA. Um, I want a company that has a diverse customer base where without too much cu cu uh, customer concentration, um, we want to be able to show uh, a great people culture, the ability to hire and grow uh, and add uh, workforce when necessary. We want a you know 75% utilized uh, factory floor um, with the ability to add new machines to the existing building. Um, so these are all kind of the, if you can do these, great, you're gonna get the best possible valuation. Now let's assume you're missing one of these pieces. And so then it just comes down to what is possible, what can be done to address it. Um, so, so going after the uh, the the items that are going to drive uh, value in the business, it's going to be in manufacturing, labor efficiency, raw material efficiency. But but even before raw material efficiency, it's going to be especially today relationships demonstrating that you have relationships with material suppliers. Uh, mm -hmm. Because in the last two years, we've seen perfectly healthy companies get. Um, their knees cut out from under them if they just couldn't get raw material. And if they couldn't get raw material, oftentimes it was a function of not having the right relationships with the right suppliers. Um, and so if you're a business that is trying to make decisions on how to, uh, you know, build, build the value of your business for say the next three to five years, looking at the suppliers that you have, are they the right suppliers? And if so, really foster that relationship. Look at, you know, your payment terms with them and make sure that you're paying a day early every single month uh, and that uh, you're giving them plenty of heads up on forecasts and, and getting as close as you possibly can to those forecasts, um, taking material when you say you're going to take it, um, you know, hitting your schedules, um, keeping regular, you know, lines of communication and, you know, again, building those relationships with the material suppliers goes a long way because when we end up in a situation like we did in 2020, 2021, those suppliers are going to call you first uh, at the top of the list and not last to tell you the bad news. You know, they'll call you first to give you first right of refusal, so to speak, uh, even though you're most certainly not going to get that in a, in a contract. But the the relationship first right of refusal uh, to be able to ensure your continuity of business. Um, and so beyond raw material, that just, that's a highlight because that's usually one of the largest expenses for, for manufacturing. Um, but you think of uh, people as being uh, somewhat similar in strategy. If you're not maintaining uh, good HR policies, um, you know, good people development in, in internally, um, making sure your, um, you know, benefits packages are, are competitive and that not only they're there, but that your people know they're there. Um, those things are going to really help differentiate you as a business. If you can point to, um, actual metrics that say, look, our retention rate is better than industry. Um, you know, our, uh, ability to develop from within. So here's these, uh, middle management uh, employees who started as interns and worked from intern to employee and from employee to supervisor, supervisor to manager. And so being able to point to some of those uh, practices and, you know, in, in our world in metal stamping, tool and die making uh, apprenticeships were, were a key piece of that, 
people development, being able to point to what we've done as a company. Um, and so in, in, in many manufacturing industries, the, the apprenticeships are the model um, from which you get, uh, you know, a green uh, employee who knows very little, but has all the drive and ambition and you get them to a seasoned veteran expert in their field. Um, and uh, having those apprenticeship programs in place, uh, they, they can be a very valuable thing. Uh, because I think I maybe mentioned it earlier, but, you know, a business may have, uh, you know, uh, may have the ability to grow by adding machinery uh, to floor space and, and add capacity from a, a you know, mechanized standpoint. But if you don't have the people to then either run those machines or manage the team that runs those machines, um, you know, they're, they're just not that valuable. And so the ability for a, a buyer to see growth potential uh, in a company is paramount and being able to connect the dots between operationally, you're able to do these things. You have the ability to get the raw material in when you need it. Uh, and you have the people to execute upon uh, a, you know, operational excellence type format. Um, those are the ways that you, you, you really demonstrate that the business has value. Yeah, so people, uh, process, operational excellence, good potential, relationships, this control of uh, some kind of control over your supply chain, those kind of things. So, I mean, this this actually logically, you know, it leads me to think. Um, so how would you compare and contrast between a sellable manufacturing business and an unsellable manufacturing uh, uh, business? I, I will define unsellable in a way, in a specific way, and then kind of get to the sellable, you know, unsellable is the assets are outdated. The cash flow is minimal or, or non-existent and in you know, a business is in, uh, is distressed, right? Um, you know, there's, there's enough buyers out there right now that, you know, they have the sophistication and they have the patience to wait for the right deal to come their way, uh, or, you know, to go out and find the right deal um, and be persistent that, you know, 95% of buyers are not out there looking for distressed businesses. Now there is such thing as there, there are firms that look for distressed businesses to buy them, uh, pick them up very cheap, actually put debt on the business uh, and, and kind of look for a business owner that's willing to ride it out and, and kind of roll the dice to say, uh, I'm willing to, to risk, uh, taking on debt in order to grow the business, it's just rare. It, it doesn't happen very often. And usually in those scenarios, it's not a good situation uh, for the, the seller and it's a high risk for the buyer. So it's it, those in that scenario, I would say unsellable is they can't hire people. The, the workforce is either aging or not capable of doing the work that they have the equipment hasn't been invested in and uh, is, is towards the end of its life. And, and, and maybe, you know, even location, the, the building isn't capable of sustaining the business. So there's, there's those things to look at in terms of unsellable, but as you, as you transition into sellable and, and levels of how ideal that sale is going to be, um, that is where we get into conversations with owners and, and the, the sellable business that you know isn't going to sell uh, as a multiple of cash flow becomes an asset sale, um, where they may have a lot of valuable equipment, but the cash flow doesn't really support a, a adjusted EBITDA or SDE calculation to determine the the value of the business. 
Um, and, and in that scenario, the, the, the business owner is faced with the opportunity to sell the assets of the business in a way that maximizes that rather than just a you know, auction and, and getting rid of things at a very low, low price. The potential opportunity there in terms of finding the right strategic buyer in that sense is, um, you know, can that buyer come in and uh, fully depreciate the assets that they're purchasing? And so it, there's, an, there's an advantage to that buyer to, to, to purchase in an asset sale rather than uh, SDE or, or adjusted EBITDA. And then as you move up, up the line in terms of sellable, it goes back to the things I mentioned before, right? The, the cash flow is strong. Gross margin is strong. The, the the people culture, the operations, the quality, uh, all of those kind of key metrics for uh, for a manufacturing business are in place. Um, and and any combination of those, um, the more you have, the the more likely you're going to get an extra, you know, half uh, uh, half a turn or full turn on the multiples. Okay, that's great. So you have used um, a couple of acronyms, and I want to make sure that. Um, we don't kind of take for granted. Everybody may be familiar with those um, acronyms, SDE and EBITDA. What do they stand for? When, when do you use uh, you know each one? So uh, SDE is seller's discretionary earnings and uh, adjusted EBITDA or EBITDA on its own, earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. <laughs> so um, no, sure. the, uh, the adjusted EBITDA would be what I mentioned earlier, uh, if there's expenses in the business that don't relate to how the business is going to be sold and who that, you know, the buyer for the business is coming into what they're buying, you can adjust that EBITDA number and say, look, we've got $100,000 a year that we spend on X that uh, isn't really relevant to the business you're buying. Thus, you know, we're going to add that back in when they actually go both ways. They go, you know, positive and negative, right? Um, let's say, for example, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish the thought on EBITDA. So EBITDA uh, kind of as a rule of thumb, generally for businesses that are doing a million dollars or more in net profit or operating uh, profit. So cash flow of the business that's generally when you you want to use that EBITDA number. The seller's discretionary earnings is usually you know million dollars and under in uh, cash flow, and part of the reason for that is uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the size scale of the business. Usually, the owner has more of an involvement in the business. So, if the owner is working full time, or maybe even they're working more than full time. Uh, and the buyer coming in uh, is going to say, well, yeah, I don't want to work 80 hours a week. I, I will run the business, but I'm going to then have to hire somebody to help me run it after I buy it because I don't want to work two jobs. Then SDE often uh, ends up being the, the calculation we'll use because we're capturing um, that owner's time uh, and how much they, you know, the business can support their salary and adding in uh, what you know the the new buyer would have to pay for say additional help uh, you know hiring additional employees the EBITDA number generally we we use that if the owner has worked themselves out of the business right the that salary doesn't need to be accounted for um, so does that uh, yeah no that's that's great I, mean, I think I think it helps in terms of uh, 
level setting the, um, you know, essentially what it comes down to is, you know, typically if the business are smaller, you use the SD, you know, the seller's discretionary income, seller being the, the owner of the business that is being sold. And if it's higher than a million, a million dollars in annual sales, uh, you tend to look at just maybe that, especially adding back like things like the owner's salary, if the owner is not going to be part of the, of the future, you know, business that's being sold out, right? So, yeah. yeah. And I would specify, actually, it's a million dollars of of EBITDA. So a million dollars of cash flow, not revenue. Uh, You know, you might, uh, you know, I would say, you know, business could be in that uh, five to ten million dollars in revenue and only, you know, in doing, you know, a million dollars in cash flow. You know, a business that does five million dollars in revenue and a million dollars in cash flow is worth more than a business that does $10 million in revenue and a million dollars in cash flow in most cases, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that means it's more efficient. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, last question is, um, what challenges do you see in the manufacturing industry and how that will impact the sale of manufacturing businesses? Sure. The, I mean, workforce generally is the, the number one topic that comes up if you ask manufacturers. Um, I like to um, kind of peel back a little bit, uh, zoom out and say, you know, if you historically in the United States, you know, we have decades of offshoring of, you know, uh, pushing um, industry out of whole cities, regions of the country um, in favor of uh, welcoming other, you know, whether it's, you know, high tech service, uh, other industries in um, maybe for the sake of tax base, but the, the globalization of commerce, uh, it, it has a huge impact and can very drastically swing um, demand for manufacturing in a given area. And so in the United States, we are still the second largest manufacturer in the world. And, and there were, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was a period of time in during COVID where many, the United States by GDP was the largest manufacturer in the world. We surpassed China for periods of time as they were shutting down because of their restrictive policy. So, so even though we, we point to the offshoring of work, it, it does need to be seen that manufacturing is still very strong in the United States. And because of that, um, the supply chain needs to be strong. And so um, the, the things that, um, you know, the things that make manufacturing businesses, or I should say, you know, the industry um, relevant and, and able to grow and, and healthy, um, they, they're influenced by public policy. So from the federal level, you know, you saw, we saw things like the, what was it, two, 273 tariffs? Uh, I'm forgetting the number now, but uh, back in 2017, the tariffs that were, were put on China um, to restrict steel and Chinese steel right. and aluminum from flooding the market and, and driving prices down and um, all of those things that the tariffs had the intention of protecting industry. And in a weird way, um, they they actually ended up hurting it because it ended up just driving up the price of uh, domestically produced steel and aluminum and other raw materials. And that hurt uh, American manufacturers because now uh, there were not tariffs on fully assembled parts and goods coming from China, but there were tariffs on raw materials. So now company in the United States is more likely to buy a finished good from China than a finished good from the United States. So you see how sometimes yeah. 
public policy at the top can trickle down and really be negative if if it's misguided and you know um uh, in those sorts of things. Now, then you take the next step, state level and local. So this is where I say, if you're a manufacturer, you got to be involved in your local manufacturing community, your statewide manufacturing community and your national you know, community. In a lot of ways, people do that is through trade groups, right? Um, there's, there's plenty of other uh, opportunities to do the same thing, but be involved because if policies are changing locally that don't allow you to do your job, don't allow you to do business uh, or at least do business competitively, you want to seat at the table before that decision is made. And so being involved, um, you know, I think uh, another example I like to use is um, people, you know, the, the politic- politicization <laughs> of global warming is kind of has become this, uh, you know, it's, it's very uh, confrontational, you know, you're on one side or the other. Um, and rather than look at global warming, I think it's important to look at local policy around environmental uh, restrictions, environmental policy, environmental expectations, because, you know, you might see a policy get put in place that seems like a good idea um, at its outset, but really has long-term effects on the industry uh, that that community depends upon. You know, in Colorado, we we deal a lot with water and water quality for, uh, you know, a million reasons heading downstream, right? Everybody on the western slope of Colorado, that water that hits our mountains and flows downhill goes to California, goes to Arizona, goes to New Mexico. And so everybody is very aware of what happens to water here. And so we've had uh, stormwater regulations put in place, very well-meaning, um, and they, they need to be there. But the way that it was rolled out ends up penalizing certain businesses and industries and not even touching others. So uh, for an example, we we had a property as part of our manufacturing facility where we had a stormwater permit. We had to we had to report any uh, heavy metals, uh, nitrites, uh, you know, chemicals that that can make their way into the the water stream that were concerning. And so we measured and we we put in place uh, protocols to avoid those types of things. But our building was next to a highway and the highway had rainfall that went on it and flowed onto our property and we couldn't stop that from happening. We had a business to the immediately next door that because they weren't manufacturing, they didn't have to have a, a stormwater permit so they could do whatever they wanted and their water would flow on our property. And so, oh so this policy was well-meaning and actually it needs to be there. I'm an advocate of it. But then rolling it out, you've got to roll it out in a way that all businesses are aware this is the expectation. And and if you really want to do that level of testing and reporting, do your local municipal systems have the ability to actually handle that and make good decisions based on it? So so that's what I get at is maybe don't pay attention so much to the global warming, but the local warming or the local environmental policy, the local um, uh, just business environment policies, right. Um, you know, how, how your communities are, are interfacing with business is very important. So I, I, I hold that up as one of those areas that, you know, businesses need to be aware of, uh, though, if you're in a place, if you're in an area, um, where those decisions are being, you know, made that are going to affect the ability for your, your company to do business, it's going to reflect negatively on your valuation. You know, buyers are going to look at, what the business environment is like where you're at. So if you have the opportunity to advocate for it, you could you can put, position your business long term um, better when it comes to to that transaction point. 
No, that's that's great. Thanks for sharing your insights. How can people um, get in contact with you, follow your work if they need to um, get some more of Chris? Um, so my email address is is very simple. It's Chris at fbb.com. Um, that's probably the easiest. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Fanant, uh, my last name, uh, F-A-G-N-A-N-T. Um, and uh, um, fbb.com is a great resource for uh, kind of all the things. Actually, we have a, a page on there that explains the difference between SDE and EBITDA. So, uh, so if my explanation wasn't clear enough, we have it in writing on the, the FBB website. Um, and you can reach out uh, at any of those places. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much again for your time and for sharing your valuable insights. It's really helpful. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Build Value by Choice. Don't forget to subscribe, share, uh, leave a rating. And we can't wait to uh, share with you next time about how you can transform your business so that when it comes time to exit, you do so without any regrets. And uh, we like to celebrate your success. So bye for now. Thank you.